For seasoned or new investors, mitigating risk has become the name of the game as we hit 2023. But there are ways that sophisticated investors can mitigate their risk while still seeking high returns in a unique deal structure that's more recently been known and available to the retail investor. Jay Scott's joining us on this episode to tell us about this once kept secret structure and share his knowledge that he's accumulated over his $140 million portfolio career. This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where we educate career-driven individuals who have tapped out their earning potential, learn about passive real estate investing so you can continue building your wealth without compromising your time or taking on more responsibilities. I'm your host and managing partner at Realm Investors, a multifamily syndication group who has helped multiply millions of dollars for our passive investors. Thanks for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Hey, investors, welcome back to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am extremely excited to be sitting down with Jay Scott. Now, Jay is an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, a co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. So if he sounds familiar, that could be where you've heard him from. I mean, he's built, rehab, sold, syndicated, done just about everything to close to 130, $140 million in property at this point. He's also an industry-renowned author with over 400,000 books sold. And, and Jay, we're just really, really excited to have you on here to share your wealth and knowledge with us. I appreciate you having me, Justin. Thanks. Hey, so tell us you know, a little bit about what you've done in the past, you have done almost everything when it comes to real estate. It's hard to not be very diverse to have, you know, 140, $50 million of transactions. So were you a flipper? That's what a lot of your books are on. You have the, the book on flipping houses, the book on estimating rehab costs, the book on negotiating real estate, recession-proof investing. You, you've done a lot. Is that how you got started or is that something like you're doing more recently? No, it is. And I guess when you say I, I've kind of done everything in real estate, it's funny because real estate is so big that like it can seem like somebody's done everything. I can feel like I've done everything. But the reality is I've kind of been pigeonholed in residential, which means I've kind of focused on single family houses and multifamily apartment complexes. I haven't much touched commercial or self-storage or mobile home parks or, or other asset classes. But yeah, I've gone pretty deep in, in the residential space. Started by flipping houses back in 2008, has flipped somewhere between four and 500 houses. Still doing that a little bit passively, investing in with some partners who are, who are doing most of the work. But for the last five years, I have, for the most part, been focused on apartment complexes. So syndicating, meaning bringing in investors to buy very large apartment complexes that we renovate, stabilize, and then ultimately resell so that we and our investors all profit. Yeah, absolutely. So you said a, a beautiful word, a key word for us passively. At this point, you know, you so at this point, you're more passive in the home flip that you do. Is that so you're entirely passive? Is that something that you feel like you would you wish you would have done earlier on? Or do you feel like you needed that active experience to be able to be a good passive partner? So I appreciate all the experience I have. I don't regret doing anything I did because it's kind of led me to where I am and I'm very yeah. happy where I am. But that said, if I can go back and do things differently, there are certainly a few things I would do differently. Number one, I would have focused less on the active, the, the transactional type real estate like flipping yeah. houses. It's a great way to make tranches of cash, pots of cash. It's, there's a heavy tax burden, number one. It takes a lot of time, number two, and it's very difficult to scale a flipping business. Mm -hmm. 
And so certainly if I had things to do over again, I probably would have moved towards the buy and hold much sooner. I would have held a lot more properties. I probably would have moved towards the multifamily space, which is a lot more scalable much sooner. But again, no regrets. And I've learned from everything I've done. But certainly one of the things I've realized over the last couple of years is that the best way to scale, the best way to grow is to focus your time, focus your efforts on whatever that one thing that you're great at, and then try and do everything else passively. So take all the money that you're making from whatever that one active venture is that you're doing and invest that somewhere with somebody you trust and be hands off. And I see too many people that try and do five, 10 different things. And at the end of the day, they, they don't do anything well. And yeah. so focus on one thing, passive on everything else. Wow. That, that's so interesting. And that one thing doesn't have to be real estate focused, right? If you're Absolutely. a great consultant, if you're a great engineer, if you're a great entrepreneur, it, it all matters. And, you know, that stuff matters. You could just stay in that lane and do that very, very well without taking on additional burden or, or committing additional hours, as we like to say. So when you invest passively in these flips now, are you investing as a debt holder or as an equity partner in the properties? Well, I invest in a lot of things passively. On the flip side, I'm an equity holder. So I'm a partner in the deals. I'm there to consult if they have any questions. If we want to know, should we be buying more right now based on economic conditions and market conditions, they'll consult me and we'll kind of all make that decision together. But from a day-to-day standpoint, finding houses, renovating houses, getting houses listed and sold, I'm completely out of that. So I'm, I'm basically putting in the money and I'm putting in my consulting effort yep. uh, when, when my partners have questions. So for the most part, I'm, I'm hands-off, but I'm still technically an equity partner. Got it. And so for any of the listeners who may not understand, that means you actually own the property with the partners. You're not lending money in a hard money fashion. So you're not collecting a monthly dividend or a monthly interest payment, but your, your profits are realized at the sale. So is that how you would recommend somebody who's maybe newer to the passive investing space and they're saying, hey, I want to invest in flips. I know flipping houses, I've heard it makes a lot of money, but but I should do it passively because th- those are two great ways to do it, either in debt in the debt way or the equity way. Do you have a recommendation for somebody who's maybe a little bit newer to the game? So here's the key difference between debt and equity as, as something you're investing in. And again, debt is making a loan. You get an interest payment every month. You don't share in any of the upside, but you also don't share in the risk. That's the big difference between debt and equity. With equity, you share in the risk. If the property if the deal does tremendously well, you make a whole lot of money. If it loses a lot of money, you lose a lot of money. So on the equity side, you're basically at the whims of the success or failure of the project, which means you have big upside, but also potential big downside. On the debt side, you're basically, you're collecting, like you said, a monthly payment, and that is independent of the performance of the property or the asset. You're just going to collect that every month. You don't participate in the downside. If there's downside, Potentially, you have to, to foreclose and take over the property, but the vast majority of the time, you're just going to collect your monthly returns. Now, when somebody's starting out, I don't like to generalize too much, but I would say if you're young, if you have a lot of earning years ahead of you, if you have a lot of years ahead of you to compound your money, the whole concept of compounding is how we get wealthy. Yeah. We take money, we invest it, and we reinvest whatever profits we get out of it. And so if you look at a chart of this kind of generating profits, reinvesting, generating, reinvesting. That's when we see this thing, that hockey stick curve, where our profit, our net worth grows slowly at first. But over time, as we keep rolling those profits in, we start to see exponential growth of our money. And so it's really important for anybody that kind of wants to build wealth over time is that they do two things or 
three things, really. Number one, you have to reinvest profits. Yeah. So what I tell everybody is it's great if you have a rental property, if it's generating $200 a month, that's great. Live off the $200 a month. But if you don't reinvest it, you're not going to grow your wealth nearly as quickly as if you can take that $200 in cash flow and put it back into another investment. Yeah. So number one is reinvestment. Number two is time. So yeah. to compound, to get that hockey stick, stick type growth curve, you need time. Generally takes five, 10, 20, 25 years to really compound your wealth into the millions or tens of millions of dollars, but it will happen. So the second thing is you got to give it time. You can't give up. You just, you'll, you'll be very happy 10 years from now, even though right now it seems like your money's growing slowly. So number two is give it time. And then number three is that rate of return. So to get that hockey stick type returns, you need larger rates of return. So what I generally tell younger people who are willing to compound their money, who are willing to reinvest their profits, who are willing to wait out the time, also seek out higher return investments. Okay. Because if you can generate higher return investments early on, you're really going to get on that hockey stick a lot faster than if you're growing very slowly. Now, obviously, there's additional risk with higher returns. Generally, there's a direct relationship between risk and return. Right. Higher returns you're going to get from a deal means higher risk. Okay. Lower returns generally mean lower risk. But again, if you're young, if you have a lot of earning years ahead of you, I think it's okay to take some risks that somebody in their 40s or 50s or 60s isn't going to take because they're a lot closer to that retirement period. They have a lot less time left if they lose a lot of money to, to recapture that. Right. So, so go after the higher returns, go after the equity investments versus the debt investments. If you're older, if you're much less risk averse, that's the right time to be focusing on those debt investments have a lot lower risk. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it because I think for a lot of people out there who, and you had hit it in the beginning of the show, you know, me and you have been in the real estate game for multiple years. There's a lot of people who are not professional in this and they barely scratch the surface of what's out there, like what's available. So it's so easy to get blasted. Oh, what, what should I do? Like, where should I go? And that's a great way of signaling to, hey, where are you at in your life and what kind of objects should you pursue? Yeah, the debt generally is more safer, but like I said, you're typically stuck at that, you know, call it an eight to 12% return, depending on how things are going, which is great. I mean, that's still a fantastic return for the safety of it, but the equity can have an enormous upside. And, and anybody who's confused about the hockey, hockey stick reference, you look up any great investor, stock market investor, help me out. What's his name? Warren there. Buffett. Warren Buffett. Look up Warren Buffett's net worth. They're on a grasp. And like most, I forgot what some insanely, insane amount of it came after he's been in the market for like 50 years, 60 years. And so that's what you mean by that hockey state. It's just going to shoot up one day and you're almost not even going to realize it. And so equity versus debt, I think that's a really great breakdown of it. Now you are currently into the syndications. So that's what our company does as well. So it's, it's a little bit bigger scale. And you had mentioned a couple of things, hey, a scalability and also gives you you know, maybe more opportunities to hold properties for a little bit longer. What are some other things that made syndications really attractive to you? So for me, it was really the ability to do larger deals. And for a long time, I kind of shied away from the big deals because everybody looks at me and they say, hey, he's done a lot in real estate and, and he's not scared to do big deals. But the, the truth is that up until 2017, my biggest deal was probably somewhere in the order of $500,000. And so for me, it was always, I looked at the people that were doing the five and 10 and 50 and hundred million dollar deals. And I thought to myself, I can't do that. Those people know something I don't know. They're in a place I'm not in. They've taken a path I didn't take. And it wasn't until I met my current business partner, her name's Ashley Wilson, who was already doing multifamily, who really taught me and convinced me 
that doing 10 and 20 and $50 million deals wasn't for other people. It was for anybody that was willing to put in the work and learn the structure. And building a syndication structure in a lot of ways is easier than trying to build a rental business on your own. Yeah. When you build a rental business on your own, number one, you're probably doing most of the work yourself. You're finding the deals and you're finding contractors and you're managing the, the rehabs and you're finding the debt, you're finding the lenders, the banks, and all of that stuff you're doing yourself. And you're coming up with the down payment yourself, most likely. Mm-hmm. But when you do the same thing, but on a much larger scale, let's say a 200 or 300 unit apartment complex that costs $30 million, you still have to do all those same things. You have to find the deal. You have to manage the renovations. You have to deal with finding the lender. You have to deal with getting the money. But the nice thing is that you can bring in other people to help, one. And two, the hard part there is for a lot of people, that money piece. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to have a $3 million or five or $10 million down payment. When you do a syndication, you're basically bringing in other people who invest passively in the deal with you, and they're the ones putting in the down payment. So for a, a single family rental property, if you buy a $200,000 property, you might have to put in $50,000 to buy that property. Literally for a $50 million syndication, you can do the exact same thing, but without a penny of your own money. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't put some of your own money in if you can. Your investors are going to want to see that you have some, some Absolutely, yeah. But Theoretically, I could do a $50 million deal and never put a penny of my own money into the deal. And so that's what I love about these larger deals. They make more money, but without considerably more work. Hey, investor, did you know that we wrote an ebook that covers the three truly passive real estate strategies that exist to retail investors? Head to the link in the show notes and download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies. We'll walk you through the three truly passive investment strategies so you can build your wealth without sacrificing your time or compromising your hours. Head to the show notes and get your free download. Let's get back to the show. I think everybody feels that way at some point in their career. They say, well, oh man, the apartment stuff or the commercial stuff, the warehouses, the strip malls, the retail centers. Oh, that's for like the 1%. You know, you kind of, it's out in space. You just think it's not for you. You're not made for this until one day you just think, oh, why not? Why don't I just look into this? You start reading about some influencers, you start getting into the into the rabbit hole. Next thing you're like looking for $50 million apartments, even though, you know, I don't know if that's the right place to start, but, you know, you, you realize that you can. And one thing that I loved about the model too is I, I've always been very, very, very passionate about real estate. And it sounds like you have been too. And I truly believe that this is something that if people truly understood real estate as an investment and all the forms that it comes in, there's not a single person who would not participate. And things like funds, things like syndications, things like private money lending, things like all of these strategies now make it so that every single person can get involved regardless of knowledge, regardless of time, regardless even of money. A lot of, a lot of funds that start out at a hundred bucks, 500 bucks, you know, you can get in. So it really opens up to a lot of people. So I really love that. So, you know, you've been through a lot of market cycles and you've been, you've kind of been there, done that with the OA and you're, you're graduate there. Are you seeing things differently now? Like, has your business model changed so far this year? And we're, we're, you know, we're at the end of 2022. Are you seeing it change in 2023? Are you worried? Are you excited? What are your thoughts on, on 2023? And then maybe even 2024 as we, you know, hear about recessions coming up and we see about vacancies rising and, and what are your thoughts? Yeah. So start with the, am I worried or am I excited? I'm not particularly excited about what is coming up. But I'm also not particularly worried. So I'm, I recognize that these market cycles exist. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have recessions historically every five or six years, maybe even even earlier than that. It just so happens that in this case, it's been 2008 to 2020, or some people kind of ignore 2020 because it was such a quick recession. And they think 2008 to 2023, 15 years between recessions. Typically, there are a lot shorter periods between those recessions. And so I expect them to happen. And I like to think that in our business, we're constantly prepared for them. So when we underwrite deals, even during great economic times, when we underwrite deals, we're very conservative. Hmm. And maybe there's an expectation that rents are going to grow six or seven or eight percent next year, which is what we've seen the last couple of years. It's been crazy. Like before 2021, 2022, nobody ever would have thought 7% rent growth was possible. And now, as of a year ago, everybody was underwriting 7% rent growth for the next few years. My personal expectation was great that we got 7%, 8% for a couple of years, but there's no way it's sustainable. So right. instead of assuming that we're going to keep going at 7%, even though a lot of smart people are thinking or were thinking that we would, we would underwrite back to 3% historical yeah. average. If we got the 7% or 6% or 8%, great, there's upside. But we always were assuming worst case. Likewise with cap rates. So a lot of us like to assume that between now and when we sell, cap rates aren't going to change. Well, when we underwrite our deals, we always assume cap rates are going to expand, which means values are going to come down between today and when we sell. And the further out we think we're going to sell, the more we assume that the cap rates are going to go up and values are going to come down. Again, just to be conservative. Likewise with interest rates. If we do a floating rate debt, we're always cognizant of the fact that maybe it doesn't look like interest rates are going to go up today. And obviously they do today, but two years ago, nobody expected yeah. interest rates going up anytime That's soon. Format, yeah. And we bought a deal back in 2020 with the floating rate but we went in with the attitude that by the time this rate expires, interest rates could be five points higher. And we didn't really think that would be ha- that would happen, but here we are. Yeah. Interest rates are almost five points higher. And so we underwrote to that worst case scenario. And so we're constantly thinking about what's the, the kind of, not the necessarily worst case, but what's a bad case scenario that we're likely to encounter. And we're ensuring that we're prepared for that situation. So Where we are today, again, not surprising. We're not thrilled about it, but it's also not worrisome because I believe we're pretty prepared. Yeah, that's interesting. What are some other ways that investors can potentially protect themselves? So you're you're very sophisticated in like deal structures and and how to make deals so that both you and the investors are shielded from additional risks. And I think that's one thing that's so fantastic about you know your knowledge is you also know those back end things that that you takes a lot of experience to really understand. And sometimes it even takes getting burned a couple of times before you realize, oh, I should have structured things this way or I should have done it this way instead. What about some ways that passive investors could potentially look for deal structures so that they could be protected? Yeah, so one of the big, not I don't want to say new, it's not new, it's been around forever, but it's becoming popular again now that the, the economy is shifting, market shifting. One of the the more common scenarios we're seeing these days are structures for deals, whether it be syndications or funds, is this idea of preferred equity. And to describe what that that is, imagine a typical deal where you even think residential, you buy a house and your 75% of the money is coming from your lender and 25% is coming as a down payment. Expand that up to an apartment complex and it's still even on a $40 million deal, 75% of that's going to come from the lender. The other 25% is probably going to come from all of your investors. Right. And when that deal makes money, whether it be cash flow on a monthly basis from operations or whether it be when the property is sold, typically the first thing that happens is on a monthly basis, the lender gets paid. 
then anything that's left over goes to your equity investors, your, your investors, your passive investors in the deal. When the property sells, first person that gets paid is the lender. You can't get through closing until the lender gets their mortgage paid off. If there's money left over, and hopefully there's money left over, that goes to your equity investors. And so being a lender is a, a much safer position than being a passive investor in a deal because the lender is always going to get paid first. Yeah. yeah. And because the, the risk for the lender is a lot lower, also the returns are a lot lower. That's why you're paying a lender 6% and you might be paying investors 15%. Yeah. Lenders taking a lot less risk. They're always getting paid first. Mm-hmm. Investors are taking more risk. They're getting paid second. Well, this idea of preferred equity is when we go and we kind of insert a layer of financing in between the lender and the regular investors, the passive Mm -hmm. investors, and we call it a preferred equity layer. And basically the way it works is the lender is still going to get paid first every month and at the sale of the property. But instead of the regular investors getting paid second, this preferred equity piece in the middle is going to get paid second. And then the rest of the investors will get whichever left over. And so basically we have this piece in the middle called preferred equity that has lower risk than regular investors, higher risk than the lender because mm-hmm. they get paid second. And because they are lower down in what we call the capital stack, because they kind of have a lower spot there, they get paid second. They also get lower returns. So that's kind of the trade-off. It's much lower risk because they get paid second as opposed to last, but they accept lower returns for it. And the nice thing for the operator side, so if you're actually running the deal, in a lot of ways, this preferred equity is like debt because it's generally fixed returns. So it might be something like a 6% annual return and a total return when the property sells of 12%. So when the operator underwrites the deal, they can model it just like debt. They can model it as a fixed return, 6% cash flow, 12% on the back end, and it makes the underwriting a lot easier. So kind of everybody wins. And so we're starting to make more investments in this preferred equity class where we're investing as that second position recipient of any cash flow or profits. In return, we're getting slightly lower returns, but we're, we have a whole lot less risk. Basically, the regular investors and the operators would have to lose their entire investment before we got hit at all. Yeah. And so so it, it's a nice place to be. Well, and so how do you typically, is it more of a, is it a preference thing? And if for anybody who's listening, who's maybe started to look at some deal packages and look at some presentations, sometimes there's a difference in, in amount that you can, can invest. The minimums may be higher or lower for different equity positions. Is it more a preference thing or are there other requirements? Like, are you seeing typically the investment minimums are higher to take that spot? Or is it maybe you must be accredited to take that spot and maybe you don't need to be accredited to take that third position of the general investors? Is there anything kind of restricting maybe the everyday retail investor from from getting into this position as well? Yeah, the biggest is simply that there aren't a lot of opportunities to invest in this preferred equity structure because a lot of operators don't structure their deals with this this class of shares in there. I think the biggest reason for that is simply because nobody's thought about this since 2008, 9, 10, back when people, uh, operators were looking to kind of reduce the risk, investors were looking to reduce the risk. So this structure was actually very popular during the last recession. But when things are going well and the market's only going in one direction, nobody's thinking, huh, I'm looking for a lower risk investment. Yeah. I mean, During 2018, 19, 20, everybody was looking for the highest risk investment because nothing was failing. Yeah. And you were Um, hitting. Yeah. Exactly. You're hitting those 30, 40, 50% IRRs. Nobody was worried about lowering their risk. So now for the first time in in over a decade, people are thinking about lowering their risk. So I think we're going to start seeing more deals that, that provide this structure. So the biggest impediment to doing this is just that there aren't a lot of those deals out there. 
Number two, typically these deals look for a much larger investment or these types of, of structures look for a much larger investment in that preferred equity place. They want one group to come in and buy that entire piece well, have the whole thing. of yeah. equity. And so that could be $2 million, $3 million, $4 million. So that's another thing. We've actually just launched a fund. One of the reasons we did that was because it gives us more buying power to go to other groups and say, hey, structure your deals with this pref equity slice. We don't have to bring two or three or four million dollars personally because we can't do that on a lot of deals. But now we have a fund that can go and we can entice operators to create this structure so that the fund invests. And also it allows our investors to get in for a whole lot less, 50,000 versus three million dollars on these types of deals. And so I think we're going to start seeing, number one, these types of investments a, a lot more often in the near future. I think we're also going to start seeing more funds in the future that are investing in these types of deals. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. And, and you know, having that fun mentality, it, it's a way of leveraging, right? And even for the operator, a lot of times it makes sense, even if they didn't have that preferred equity spot. Hey, if I have to raise $15 million and you're coming with 10, okay, you know, I'm pretty willing to take some stuff or put additional kickers or side carts on the table for you to, to really get that and to get that piece off of our plate and then have one report, right? Typically a report to you as the fund and then you report to kind of your investors. So I love the insight. It's something that I think Unfortunately, it takes people a lot of time and they feel like they need to be very sophisticated to learn these types of things. And now we have things like these podcasts where people just learn from guys like you who have been there, done that, and who are making these opportunities available. So I think this has been an awesome, awesome conversation. You know, for the passive investors listening, I hope you learned quite a bit. Jay, for people who want to reach out to you, how can they reach out and who should maybe get in touch? Yeah. So very easy. Just you can go to with jscott.com, just the letter J. And from there, that kind of links you out to everywhere. And for anybody that wants to learn more about any of the types, of, I, I talk about this stuff. I write a weekly newsletter where some of the topics I've talked about recently are that preferred equity type structure is getting popular. I've talked about how bonds work and how, how currency works. And, and I've talked about yield curves and a lot of economic topics. So if that's the type of stuff that you're interested in, uh, www.neckwithjscott.com, sign up for the newsletter and you'll get my weekly article and anything else you need from me. Perfect. So listeners, we're going to put a resource in the show notes while you're there. If you haven't already, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies. All those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in. Jay, thanks for coming on. Justin, this was fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for today's show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking to learn more about passive real estate investments, make sure you head to our show notes and download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies, where we reveal the ins and outs of the truly passive ways to invest in real estate. We'll see you on the next episode.